Hello and welcome to the March of History, Episode 8. I'm your host, Trevor Furness, along with my brother and co-host, Brandon Furness. And we are here today to bring you the next installment of the saga of Julius Caesar's very interesting life. So we left off last time with him supporting Pompey on a number of different special commissions for example to clear the Mediterranean of the pirates. Pompey does a fantastic job and we're going to talk more about that later and he eventually gets the commission to fight Mithridates and Tigranes of Pontus and Armenia respectively and does a great job at that as well. But the point for Caesar being that he was supporting these causes for Pompey to get on Pompey's good side. Now we had left off with Caesar having come back from being proquaestor in further Spain, he had the whole you know thing where the Senate thought that he was maybe raising rebellion among some of the provinces on his way back, which I personally think is a load of crap, but you know that's it's for you to decide. And he's waiting now for his turn to jump into the next election that he can. Each rung on the political ladder has a a minimum age, just like in in the U.S. we do today, of an age that you have to be in order to run for that position. So, for example, I think for the U.S. Congress, it's what, Brennan? It's 25? Uh, It sounds about right. And I I know for presidency, it's definitely 35. Yeah, president's 35. And the Romans had similar age restrictions on their positions. So Caesar's waiting for that to happen, but obviously you don't want to just sit there and, and do nothing, let everybody forget about you in the, in the next few years. So you try to find more creative, outside-the-box means to do things to make people remember you and make yourself stand out, things that aren't necessarily required on the political ladder in order to get you to the consulship, but would certainly help. And in this vein of thought, Caesar decides to accept a commission to be surveyor of the Appian Way. Now, the Appian Way was a major road going in and out of Rome. So it would be one that many of the citizens used every single day, and fixing it up and making it look nice and usable would definitely be appreciated by the common people. Now, Caesar accepts this commission, and and you would think, well, why wouldn't anybody just want this? It's because it's, it's quite expensive. You got to spend your own money. The state is going to give you some money to fix up the road, but if you just use the state's money, it's, it's not going to end up looking that good, and it's probably going to backfire, and people are just going to think you were a cheapskate. The electorate was infamous for holding it against politicians for being cheapskates with their own money, and would never forget that. Yeah, that seems like an interesting thing. That I mean, today I would never think you know a politician doesn't fix some roads, some highways near me. He's being a cheapskate. I would never, you know, you wouldn't even think of it, of someone today. It being up to them to spend their own money to build out the roads. You just think, oh, the government didn't fund this, and so uh, they're not they're not putting the money in the right place. But that's that's definitely something different from now. Is that back then they they held the the person in the in the position personally responsible for not spending their own money to support whatever it was that they're responsible for. No, that's that's a definitely a good point. And I guess, I mean, there is some of that nowadays. Like you'll hear politicians saying that, oh, you know, I won't be accepting money from big campaign donors or whatever. But it's not, like you said, it's not the same. It's not 
back then it seems to have been much more personal, which is goes along with what we've been saying about politics in, in Rome all along, is that politics are inherently personal in Rome, and even the money that you spend is expected to be personal uh, while holding your position, which it, it is rather odd. Yeah, you would think, I mean, then if, if you care a lot about the Appian Way, you just elect whoever's the richest to, to run it, or at least... Whoever's just because they're rich doesn't and, mean and they're going to be generous, cheap. right? Yeah. So yeah. Crassus was so Crassus famous might, being rich, might not famous want being cheapskate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the people might made, not want him in any office. Yeah. So, but even a cheapskate like Crassus would would know that if I'm publicly seen to be cheap like this, then the people may hold it against me in the next election. Yeah. So even he would try to be somewhat generous. And so every every politician knew what was expected of them, and they would spend money to varying degrees. But inevitably, you always have your cheapskates. People just can't help it. You know, they just can't help themselves to be cheap. And the people did not like this. Well, Caesar was not like this. First of all, I said he spent a lot of his own. He spends a lot of his own money on the Appian Way to improve it. He doesn't have a dime. So when I say he spends his own money, I mean he's borrowing huge sums of money and taking on huge sums of debt. Yeah, it makes you think. I mean, somewhere along the way, in one of these offices, there must have been some guy that was the most generous he could be, but just didn't have any money. <laughs> so he just still took out lots of debt. Maybe maybe that is Caesar. <laughs> that, and I was just going to say, that guy is Caesar. <laughs> yeah, so. He was, he was known for being like the most generous of politicians perhaps ever in the history of the Republic, and he didn't have a dime, so just giving away other people's money, really, mortgaging himself to the hill, and essentially gambling on his own future, saying that, you know, I'm betting that this is going to bring me a return of popularity and votes and I will be elected to ever higher ranks within the you know, political ladder and eventually reach the consulship and be awarded governorship of a province where I can then exploit all the people of the province, get all this money back or start some kind of war where I can you know, take a bunch of booty from some enemy, sell it and pay back all these debts. And everybody lending money to him is also gambling that same gamble. You know, they are betting on Caesar as well. And that's the thing. Not just anybody can borrow all this money and give it away to the people. You know, a lot of lesser politicians would have been capped. You know, the the people lending the money would have said, no, 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 no. I'm not lending you. Like, that's a crazy amount of money. Let's cap you at a a normal amount. So Caesar had to convince all these people lending him money to lend him obscene amounts of money for him to spend it on obscene things. So he's got he's not he's not only selling the electorate on himself, he's selling these lenders on himself to lend him all this money as well. Yeah, I was going to say, like, he must have had confidence in himself. Like, it, it can't just be you, you get the money, but you also have to think that you'll be good enough to meet the gap between uh, you and the people to get the, that popularity that you need to be able to then pay back those debts. But, but yeah, I didn't think about that. Also, the debtors in the first place must have had confidence in him as well. Yeah, and you think, well, who are these people? Some of them are maybe businessmen, some of them are bankers, but some of them are other politicians like Crassus. And Crassus was famous for lending money to young politicians on the, on the rise and then requiring things of them when it came time for him to vote on something or you know get something done that he wanted. They would be beholden to him because you know, they owed a bunch of money to him, and he would lend this money interest-free – and then when a big vote came or something that really mattered came about, he would then call the money all due at once. Of course, the people we lent the money to, if they had the money to begin with, they wouldn't be borrowing from him, you know? So then sure. they'd 
he'd say, well, I guess we can find an alternative arrangement. Just you know, make sure you vote on this ballot correctly or on this bill correctly, and uh, you know, I won't be calling the, the loan in today. So he would do that to people. So, I mean, Caesar's taking massive gambles, and he really is betting on himself in that this is all going to pay off because this could all end ruinously. And we're going to see an example of a guy later in the podcast that that happens to, and it does not end well. And this guy is kind of a similar story to Caesar, but different in some ways. But yeah, he, he's taking a lot of debt on, actually, an, an enormous amount that was. It was not uncommon for young politicians on the make to take a bunch of debt onto themselves, not just for running for office, but also just for appearances and to make yourself seem, you know, like somebody on the make and somebody that's got wealth and keeping up with the Joneses. But even among the politicians of Caesar's day, Caesar's debts were considered remarkable, exceptional, absurd. In fact, there's a story of him commissioning a villa to be built on the countryside, and then when it's finally finished, he immediately says it doesn't meet his standards and orders it all to be torn down. Yeah, that's that's crazy. I mean, it's, there must have been some degree of risk here, even if he believed in himself and other people did too. I mean, it seems like something like that is just uh, risky. But um, but yeah, it's funny. I I just listened to some podcast the other day about some kind of pyramid scheme that a company was running. But anyway, back to to this, they did kind of did a similar thing where they. They spent tons and tons of money on seeming uh, rich and affluent. That way they could basically just convince people that they were rich and affluent and that the, the scheme was doing well and then get more people underneath them. So um, I wonder if he's yeah. just running a bit of a pyramid scheme. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. I mean, I wouldn't say a pyramid scheme, but it's, it's the whole idea of act as if, right? Act as if you're successful. Act as if you're rich. Act as if you're going places and people will believe all of those things to be true. Right, and then it'll be a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It is a self-fulfilling prophecy, but it's it's you have to have kind of nerves of steel because this whole time, you know, you're mounting up these massive debts that nobody has seen the likes of which before, and hoping that this can all work out in some way in the future. I mean, you could get sick tomorrow. You could get hit by a a carriage. You know, <laughs> you could. This yeah. is uh, ancient times. People died on all the time of of who knows what. And nobody even knew why. His his dad died putting on his shoes one morning. But I guess if you're thinking about it that way as well, what's it matter? You know, if you think I could die putting on my shoes tomorrow, then why not take on all this debt? Yeah. So that's a good point. I I wonder how much his father dying like that had an influence on him. You know, thinking that like, oh, what's it matter anyway? Let's just just take the big risks. Yeah. But then convincing people to lend you money when they know that people can die so easily – back then and they know that you know things happen that's it makes a sale to the lenders tougher well he seems to have managed to have done it now he, he spent a bunch of his money and, and it, it showed that he would be a good candidate for the next position on the political ladder or as they called it the cursus honorum or the race of honor which is the same word they used for the chariot races they knew that you know politics was like a chariot race where you could crash at any time, crash and burn, and be thrown from your chariot. And there was political wrangling and and bumping into each other. So they, it's funny they have the same name for their chariot race as they did for the race up the political ladder, cursus honorum. And the next step is called a it's called aedile. Now aedile was it was not a required post on the totem pole of political offices. 
it was an optional one. But somebody who wants to become consul a lot of times would want to do this position because it's a chance to really stand out. And the aedile was in charge of staging public games and the upkeep of public places. So Caesar spending a whole bunch of money when he was restoring the Appian Way had shown to the people, hey, you know, if I'll spend this kind of money when I'm surveyor of the Appian Way, imagine what I would do as aedile. So he runs for aedile and he's elected. And like I said, this is an optional position because there were some positions that were open to other politicians that weren't open to Caesar because he was a patrician. Other politicians could have run for tribune of the plebs and made a name for themselves by supporting some bills of the people. As a patrician, Caesar's not allowed to do that. So he doesn't want to sit there and wait, you know, sitting on his hands for the next, I don't know, five, ten years, or maybe not ten years, but until he can be praetor. So he'd rather be aedile in the meantime, even though it's optional. Now, some politicians didn't want to be aedile because they felt that it was a position that required you to expend exorbitant amounts of your own money, and they had no desire to be doing that. But Caesar never had a problem with that. So he he figured, you know, this is a position that requires me to spend a whole bunch of my own money, that requires me to put on public games and take care of public places. He's a natural showman, and he shows that to the utmost in his duties as aedile. And this is when he's 35 years old uh, in 65 BC. So if you had thought that Caesar was spending a lot of money as a, or as a surveyor of the Appian Way, then he puts that completely into the shade as aedile. And he spends grotesque amounts of money. So at this point, has he even paid off his previous debts from the, the oh, Appian no. Way? No, he hasn't paid off any debts. In fact, okay. I think it's Plutarch says that he had an enormous sum of debts before he even began uh, political life. You know, before he was even 30 years old and he run for the first office, he already had huge debts. Jeez, so is he paying interest on this stuff or is this, uh, is this uh, a free paying, loan from I think he's Crassus? paying interest. Uh, maybe okay. some of it's free from Crassus, but uh, much of it's interest. But nobody expects him to pay it off right away. They expect him to keep rising up to the political ladders until he becomes consul. And then proconsul, and then he can pay them back. So it's a gamble that he's going to reach the top. And so they'll keep okay. lending him money as long as he keeps winning and getting new positions. But the second he loses an office and doesn't win an election, he's in trouble. So it kind of almost sounds like they're investing in him rather than lending him money. It's exactly. Like they give him money and, and hoping to get a big return because he does well rather than they give him money. He gives them an expected amount back after some amount of time. Exactly. Sounds yeah. kind of like they're investing in him. And the reason why they would lend him so much money is because everybody met this guy and was so charmed by his charisma that they felt that this is one heck of an investment I need to get in on. You know, I'll happily lend this guy money. Yeah. Even if he does, you know, borrow crazy amounts of money, he just seems like he's going places. Yeah. And by them giving him the money because of that, it'll, it'll make that more likely to be true. Yeah. So Adrian Goldsworthy says in his book, Life of a Colossus, quote, it was his personal money only in the sense that he had borrowed it. Even before he had held elected office, Plutarch tells us that Caesar was said to have debts of over 13,000 talents, a total, a total of over 31 million sestercii in Roman currency. To put this into proportion, the minimum property qualification for a member of the equestrian order at a slightly later date and probably also at the same time was 400,000 sestercii. This was a staggering sum. 
which was then massively increased by his spending as curator of the Appian Way and as Adile. Caesar was gambling on his political future being bright and lucrative enough to cancel out his debts. His creditors were taking the same risk, but presumably had confidence in Caesar to do well. And the greatest part of his money was most probably owed to Crassus. Caesar was not the only rising senator he funded in this way, but it is unlikely that he gave others as much leeway to keep on borrowing more and more, end quote. So I know I threw out a, a lot of numbers there of currencies that have long since been extinct. So let me explain that. So he's saying that to be considered part of the equestrian order, which is like the business class, the equestrians were the equivalent of like medieval knights, you would almost say, but they mostly did business by this time. You had to have 400,000 sestercii when they did the census. So that was the minimum amount of property holdings you had to have in order to qualify for that rank in society. Caesar had borrowed 31 million sestercii. <laughs> wow. So, so is he considered an equestrian? No, he's or, a patrician. No, he's a – oh, I see. So that's in the same – yeah, so it's it's confusing because there are certain ranks that you have to qualify by amounts of funds and other ranks that you have by virtue of your blood and your birth. So remember, Sola was born dirt poor and so would not have qualified to be an equestrian even if he hadn't been a patrician, but he was born a patrician, a noble. And he actually could not enter the Senate until his stepmother and his – the courtesan that he was uh, having an affair with died and both left their fortunes to him. And then he had enough money to enter the Senate. So even though he was a patrician before that, he didn't have enough money to enter the Senate. Okay. Okay. So you, you do have to have a certain amount of money to enter the Senate. Do you have to have a certain title like a question or no? You don't have to have a certain title. You can be anybody. And as long as you're elected to Quaestor, you become a Senator, which is like a guy like Cicero. What happened with him? So that, that's something I should explain is after the consulship, there was another position elected once every five years called censor. And the censors were typically elder statesmen of the Roman Republic. They had been consul already, and it was their job to hold the census every five years. And they would count all the people in the Republic, all the citizens at least. They would say – they would count the amount of property each person had and – by that, then give them a ranking, basically. You know, you are of this social status, you are of that social status. And the census was essential to political life because it created such a, it fostered such an environment of competition between the citizens because everybody wanted to rise in the next census. It brought a lot of benefits. And everybody knew about each other rising or falling in the census. So, you know, it was very public. And that, so I forget where I was getting at with that. <laughs> but essentially, the censors would then say, okay, you have 400,000 sestercii in property. You can be an equestrian, which is considered pretty high up on the social status. So that's 400,000 in property. Caesar had borrowed 31 million. Yeah, before yeah, he sorry. held any office, he had borrowed 31 million. Well, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, that's it's interesting to think that. That money is actually qualification to run for an office. Like that's nothing like today. It's almost like the opposite. Like if if you're more poor, if you make less money, then you're more <laughs> uh, yeah. able to. Depending on the situation, if you started off poor and then made a lot of money, then that could be 
look good on your part. But there, there's no kind of qualification, hard qualification. You have to be this rich to, to run for an office. Yeah, there's no hard qualification. There's definitely soft ones. You know, it could be tough to yeah. win if you have no money or at least nobody to borrow from. But yeah, it, it is interesting that way. But it looks like, I mean, a guy like Caesar who clearly his debts way outweighed his assets was still in the Senate. So maybe they counted borrowed funds as well or access to funds. Yeah. Maybe he's just seen as patrician and such a charismatic and up-and-coming force that it wasn't really thinkable to try and give him the boot out of the Senate because they would kick people out of the Senate, the censors, if you didn't have enough money or if you were acting unscrupulous. Okay. But that's okay. So I just want to give you an idea. Like those are the kind of debts that he was taking on, like astronomical sums. But Caesar has a flair for showmanship and for style, and he displays them to the utmost in his role as Adile. And he hires so many gladiators because remember one of their jobs is to put on public games. So he hires so many gladiators that he holds around 320 single combat fights between gladiators. So you got to think that's at least 600, or probably. Well, I guess it maybe didn't all happen at once. But he brings in so many gladiators into Rome and decks them all out in silver armor, which is the first time anyone had ever done that in Roman history, decked out their gladiators in silver armor. Imagine how much money that costs. And he brings so many into Rome that his political opponents get nervous. They get terrified, actually, that he's planning some kind of coup against the government, and they rush through a bill limiting the number of gladiators you were allowed to have in Rome. And this actually limited the amount that he was able to put on, and he wasn't actually able to meet the promise of how many games he said he was going to put on for the people because of this bill. So, I mean, you can you imagine how frustrating that is for Caesar. You know, he's promised the people these grand games. He's really gone through a ton of work to do this. And then his political opponents, you know, rush through a bill that says, hey, you can't have all these gladiators. Basically, too bad. Yeah, and so at this point, I mean, has he already spent the money and now he's just left with the... A bunch of gladiators he can't use? Or <laughs> he might. Have, they, don't, they don't say, but that's a good they point. They don't go into that detail. You may yeah. have a whole bunch of them just sitting outside of Rome that he's not allowed to bring in Rome. <laughs> but yeah. uh, but he, he puts them all in silver armor and has them fighting for the people. And then Suetonius says that he fills the – and he's one of the historians, that, uh, you know, one of the primary sources – says that he fills the comitium, the forum, and its adjacent basilicas and the capital itself with, quote – a display of materials which he meant to use in his public shows, building temporary colonnades for the purpose, end quote. So he builds all these temporary colonnades around the capital, around the forum, to display all these materials of empire that he's going to bring to the people. And he does not just gladiator shows, but he also puts on uh, wild beast hunts and uh, tons of plays and, and probably theaters that were erected just for the purpose. And this is not all from his money. He gets some money from the state. A ton of it is borrowed from borrowed from other people. But he has fellow aediles, and one of those fellow aediles is a man by the name of Marcus Calpurnius Bibulus. Bibulus enters the stage, and Bibulus was Caesar's partner in the aedileship. And Bibulus, Bibulus contributed a bunch of his own money as well. Nowhere near as much as Caesar, but still a fair amount of his own money. And Bibulus would get no credit for this. You know, P Caesar was so flashy, so nah, popular. Yeah, I was going to say, why is it? Everybody yeah. gave Caesar credit for it and said, you know, this was all Caesar's doing. Because 
it wasn't enough just to spend money. People people often spent fortunes on this stuff and then fell flat on their faces when the show didn't go right you know, or didn't look good. You had to have a flair for the showmanship. So Caesar had both the ability to put on an incredible show and the willingness to borrow massive sums of money to put it on and was just such a person that was you know front and center in everything that he did that Bibulus just got put in the shade by him. And so nobody gave Bibulus any credit for this. And this would cause Bibulus to be resentful of Caesar, obviously. And this is not where this would end. These two would remain lifelong rivals, and Bibulus would come to despise Caesar on the level of like a, a Cato, the, the way Cato hated Caesar. And they would become lifelong enemies after this. Maybe they didn't like each other before that. I don't know. But we know that this is the first instance of them serving in office together, and it won't be the last time. So now does Caesar also hate Bibulus back or is it more like – because I know in the past we've talked about how Caesar is always forgiving people. But in this case, did he also feel the same way, just held a grudge against Bibulus? No, Caesar seems to have almost like looked down on Bibulus, like he wasn't worth hating. (laughs) Is that just because of his his funny name or (laughs) – it's all seems so, to get back to that his name is Bibulus. And, it might because he, he must. <laughs> I pulled up his Wikipedia page and here's what it says about him. Like in the in the very second line about him, I've never seen a Wikipedia page like this. It goes, Marcus Copernicus Bibulus was a politician of the Roman Republic. He was a plotting conservative and upholder of the established social order who served in several magisterial positions alongside Julius Caesar and conceived a lifelong enmity towards him. But it describes him as a plotting conservative and upholder yeah, of the establishment. Yeah, 2,000 years later, he's still getting trashed on, uh, on Wikipedia now. <laughs> the definition of plotting is slow-moving and unexciting. <laughs> I don't know of huh. any other Wikipedia page where they start out with an adjective like that. They call you plotting right from the get-go. But it's funny because that is the way I, I, I have come to think of him from reading all these stories. Not that anyone in the ancient sources ever describes him as being plotting, but it just seems to be like the – I don't know, the reputation that he seems yeah. to have gained over the years. And he may have even had that reputation at the time, but he just seems like maybe he was a capable guy. Maybe he was a hardworking guy. Who knows? But he was put next to this like superstar of a human being, Julius Caesar. He's going to put anybody in the shade. And Bibulus always had the misfortune of being in office at the same time as Caesar because they were the same age. And so always got put in the shade. But yeah, maybe part of it's his name. <laughs> just sounds like <laughs> A goober, Bibulus. Yeah, so I would think, yeah, to get to that point, he must have been, you know, he must have done something. He must, you know, not be some kind of a complete joke or something. But at the same time, I mean, I guess someone could be good at things, but just have like a, a personality that's still, you know, people don't find agreeable. And so they just, despite of doing fantastic things, people just kind of make fun of him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think he ever accomplished anything major. He was more just trying to stop Caesar every step of the way. And that's the thing you'll see about Caesar's enemies. They weren't really trying to accomplish anything outside of stopping him. You know, like they didn't have any alternative view for the Republic. He had an alternative. Like he wanted changes. He had changes he wanted to make to the Republic. The Optimates felt the Republic was just fine the way it was and almost like it was perfect at its creation. And any changes to it were changes in the wrong direction. So they didn't really have anything that they wanted to change. They wanted to leave everything the exact same. So they're more just obstructionists than anything, which is not to say that that, that's bad if you actually believe that the Republic was perfect when it was first founded, and maybe it was, but I mean, as we've talked about, so many things have changed since then. There's been civil wars, you know, the wealth disparity has has gone out of control in Rome. 
the and they have a massive empire now. They're not a city state. So a guy like Caesar and a lot of the popularities believe that they need to change the laws of the republic to change with the times. And a lot of the optimists think that no, that's against the traditions, and we need to leave everything the way it was. Okay, and so Babelus, he was an optimist. Yeah, yeah, he was definitely okay. one of the arch optimists. And so I, I want to say, I want to read one more thing about Caesar's debts real quick. Cause I just came across it. Plutarch says that, quote, many thought that by incurring such expense to be popular. He changed a solid good for what would prove to be a short and uncertain return. But in truth, he was purchasing what was of the greatest value at an inconsiderable rate. So Plutarch says a lot of people what, thought that he, was, people? Yeah, that he was buying like a short-term cheap popularity that was going to you know, get him nowhere. But in reality, what nobody realized was that he was buying at a cheap rate long-term fame you know, for, for the ages. And then I want to read this quote by Bibulus, too, that Suetonius tells us about. After the, or during the Aedile ship, or after the Aedile ship, Bibulus remarked openly, or quote, Bibulus remarked openly, quote, The temple of the heavenly twins in the forum is always simply called Castor's, and I always play Pollux to Caesar's Castor when we have a public entertainment together. So what he's saying there, there was this temple of Castor and Pollux, and they were like these twin gods or brother gods or something like that but people just shortened it when they said it's the caster or the temple of caster so he says whenever they're in public putting on games bibulus feels that he's, he plays pollux to caesar's caster you know like it's the games of caesar and bibulus but nobody ever says bibulus you know they, they forget about him so even bibulus yeah. is admitting this yeah yeah it's interesting i i remember hearing one thing one time where uh there's some kind of dispute about it may have involved like uh, some some different artists, some different musical artists, but there a lot of artists are going back and checking when they have a song that says by this person and this person, this person, naming the members in the band. They want to make sure that they get the order right for who is like say say if there's the Beatles and it's mostly like John Lennon that wrote that song. They want to make sure that his name comes up first because over time it, they notice that the names tend to get cut off and only show like the first name or something for a song. Uh-huh. And so they went back and, and made sure it's the right order. So, yeah, it's kind of similar to what you're saying here with uh, Caesar's name being first and then Bibulus. I mean, now no one even knows who Bibulus is. People know. Everyone knows Caesar. So exactly. I guess yeah. it's uh, – yeah, it's, it's true. I, it's important it's just, to have your name yeah, first. Yeah, it's true. And it was true at the time in the short term. It's been true over, over the long term of thousands of years. People have forgotten Bibulus. And, I mean, this is a recurring theme. They'll serve in, like, major postings later together where – people will forget about Bibulus too. I don't want to give away the story, but it's actually a pretty good one. And Caesar, on his part, at this point, hasn't really given Bibulus a reason to hate him. He's just you know, shining bright, and Bibulus isn't like being put in the shade. But later, Caesar definitely gives Bibulus a reason to hate him. <laughs> but uh, you'll have to wait to hear about that one. Now, Plutarch, another one of the primary sources, says that Caesar was showing such generosity and magnificence in his presentation to the people that they, the people began to eagerly look forward to finding him new offices and new honors to repay him for his generosity. So basically, the people are so in love with Caesar after putting on all these games at his own expense 
that you know they are eagerly saying to him, hey, we want to find you new offices. We want to find you new postings, new honors, anything we can do because we just love the things that you put on for us so much. You know, they want to serve him any way possible. And this is also advertising his name. You know, people before who didn't know the name Julius Caesar, they definitely know it now. Now, at the height of this popularity with the people and while he's still adile, Caesar, he does another remarkable gamble. He brings out images of Marius and figures of the god victory to be secretly placed at night in the capital. So he has a whole bunch of people bring out these trophies of Marius and victory and put them onto the Capitol Hill and decorate the whole area in the middle of the night. And everybody wakes up in the morning and they go and they, and they see these glittering gold statues with inscriptions referencing Marius's victories over the Titones and Cimbri and how great of a general he was and how he had saved Rome from the threat of the German barbarians coming down from, from the north. And again, going back to the, his his funeral oration that he had gave, where he you know showed icons of Marius and trophies of Marius, these things were banned. They were you were not allowed to show the trophies of Marius, even though in many of the temples you'd see trophies of many other war heroes of Rome's past. But Marius was banned because Sola's establishment still held grip on power in the city. And now, right, now, uh, what exactly do you mean by figures of victory? Do you mean like figures depicting Morris's victories? Or? Yeah, exactly. Figures okay. depicting okay, Morris's victory, maybe figures showing the god, I think it's a god victory, clenching maybe a sword, an inscription of Morris underneath and what Morris had done, war medals that he had won. You know, maybe he had won medals for saving this unit or for doing this remarkable deed and Caesar's displaying all these honors that he's won. Things like that, because Marius rose from the ranks as like a common, ordinary soldier to become consul. So he fought all the way through. You know, he was a lifelong soldier. Right. And they say that people were surprised at the boldness of the person who had set all of these things up because it was against what the establishment would want. Nor was it hard for them to guess who had done it, we're told. So even at this point, you know, they're surprised at the boldness of the person who did it, but they're also – they don't find it very hard to guess who had done it. You know, they all know, oh, this must have been Julius Caesar who did this. So he's already making himself stand out as, you know, one of the top dogs in, in the popularity tradition. Yeah, that's interesting. That's uh, – the fact that he's getting credit without taking credit. I wonder if there are other things that were done that he also got credit for – you know, at that point, they assume, oh, any great thing that happened, like, uh, must have been Caesar. <laughs> I wonder if there's anything else that, you know, great that happened. Maybe something that Bibulus did that Caesar also got credit for. <laughs> oh, definitely. He definitely got credit for things Bibulus did. I think that's what made Bibulus so mad. Right, yeah. Maybe not, <laughs> you know, it sounds like, I mean, in this case, he did do it. But if there's cases where he did do something, didn't tell anyone and got credit for it, I would imagine that there would be cases where, he didn't tell anyone, that, and then people also assume, you know, even if he didn't do it, that he that he did it. So. Yeah, and vice versa. There's many times where he's accused of being involved in plots against the government, which he may have had nothing to do with, but because his name is just such like a hot topic name, people just love bringing him up in any situation. Uh, you know, he gets credit where he doesn't deserve credit, and he gets blame where he doesn't deserve blame. You know, he's he's such a polarizing figure that. He, he's quick to be brought into any situation. Yeah. And all that, I guess, is publicity. <laughs> exactly. There's no such thing as bad publicity, right? Yeah. Now, 
the word spreads around the city like wildfire about these statues and representations of the victories of Marius and people and crowds flock to the Capitol Hill to, to see all these statues uh, and to see for themselves had somebody really done this, you know, this seems like craziness to them. And someone, you know, some of the people who come, you know, they are optimists and they start to yell out and they go, this is from Plutarch, quote, they called it a, a, quote, open attempt against the established government, thus to revive those honors which have been buried by the laws and decrees of the Senate, that Caesar had done it to sound the temper of the people whom he had prepared before, and to try whether they were tame enough to bear his humor and would quietly give way to his innovations, end quote. It's kind of a confusing quote, but basically what they're saying is that this is an open rebellion against the established order and the established government right now to revive these honors, which they have specifically banned. And that Caesar did it specifically to fire and rouse up the people and to see if he could get away with it and to see if the establishment would try to stop him or if they would be too meek to do so and would, you know, give way, yield way to him, basically, which, I mean, they're not exactly wrong about that. That's kind of exactly what he's doing. Yeah. We're also told that the populares become emboldened by this. You know, nobody wants to stick their neck out before this because they might just get their head chopped off. You know, they don't want to stick their neck out and say, oh, I'm a proud populare, you know, because they're afraid of you know, what might happen to them. But now with Caesar behaving so absurdly boldly, it emboldens the rest of them. And suddenly it's stunning how many populares there are around the city. And they cry for joy when they see the statues of Marius and, and his likeness and his victory trophies. And they say that Caesar is the one man in the Republic who's worthy of being a relative of Marius. And, you know, all these people in hiding before that might have been secret supporters of Marius, secret populares, are now feel emboldened enough to be out in the open about it. And they don't feel that they're going to be persecuted for this anymore because Caesar is basically their champion. He's standing up for them. So are, are all the common people, are they mostly all populares or are some of them optimists? Is it only like an elite class thing to be an yeah, optimist or at least like maybe not, maybe not elite, but like. Yeah, no, it, well, it's almost an elite thing to be either or because the, the people don't really care about this so much. They just care about whoever gives them bread and circuses. They like a show. They're very fickle. They, the people flip flop back and forth on who they like and who they don't like. It's very difficult to predict. The populares means that the politicians deriving their power from the people. It doesn't always mean that the people are solely united on the side of the populares. Because Rome okay. is a very conservative, traditional society. The people, you know, they themselves also like the traditions of Rome and don't want things to change too quickly. You know, they okay. are instinctively conservative by nature. So even though Caesar is doing everything for them, I mean, they're very fickle. There's even a story about, and this is maybe like 100 years before Caesar, where you had these two brothers, uh, the Gracchi brothers, who were promising the people all sorts of uh, grand things. And the optimists got in their head, oh, well, you know, we can play this game too. And they have one of their politicians promise even grander, like absurdly grand gifts to the people that couldn't possibly be done, but the people didn't know any better. And so the people started voting for the optimate instead of the you know guy who was actually trying to represent their interests, the populari, one of the Gracchi brothers. 
And when the optimate wins, he just proceeds to do nothing of what he said. <laughs> so, you know, the people, mm -hmm. the, the more of the stories that the people could be tricked pretty easily by this stuff and weren't always sure who represented their interest and kind of took these politicians at face value. But it wasn't just, you know, they didn't just vote for politicians that said, hey, I'm going to pass a grain bill or this or that. They might feel that somebody like Cato is such a stern representative of the republic that he's going to put an end to the corruption they see, you know, versus Caesar's a guy that's you know, maybe bribing people left and right in elections. And they may feel, you know, a moral connection to Cato. So, I mean, it's very complex. Now, but going back to Caesar, so he's got some people accusing him of trying to overthrow the government by bringing out these icons of Marius, and these trophies of Marius. And the arch conservative, the arch optimate Catullus, who actually his Catullus's father served as co-consul with Marius, resents all this because his father was consul with Marius and should be getting equal credit. Marius shouldn't be this big hero in his mind. His father should be just as, you know, high, highly praised as Marius. And on top of that, he's just, you know, he's an arch optimate. He does not like what Caesar's doing, does not like this going against what the established government has said. And he comes out and denounces Caesar. And I'm going to read a section that Tom Holland says in his book, Rubicon, The Last Years of the Roman Republic, I think sums it up nicely. So, quote, One morning, Rome woke to find all the trophies of Marius, long a non-person, restored. The sullen establishment was appalled. After Caesar had coolly admitted his responsibility, Catullus went so far as to accuse him of assaulting the Republic with a battering ram. Caesar, playing the innocent, responded with outrage himself. Had Marius not been just as great a hero as Sola? Was it not time for the rival factions to bury the hatchet? Were they not all citizens of the same republic after all? The mob assembling in Caesar's support roared out its answer. Yes. Catullus was left to sputter impotently. The trophies stayed in place. End quote. Yeah, that's uh, it's good that it, I guess a good political move that is kind of uniting, even though there are these two rivaling factions of Sola people in the the Morris people that he's kind of, I mean, now that they're both gone anyway, you know, and then back into, into Romans. Absolutely. Yeah. And he, he makes the point that, you know, Marius was a hero of the Roman people. Why should he be ignored? And, you know, again, this is a gamble. He, he's hoping that people are going to support him in this, but I think just doing the deed of bringing out these trophies and icons is not enough. You know, had he been accused by the establishment and had he gotten nervous and scared and, Given a, a weak speech, maybe the people wouldn't have supported him, but he stood up there proudly and you know gave this great speech about you know was Marius not the same kind of hero as Sola that got the people really riled up and they cheered him on and they and they screamed yes he was and then you know the establishment and Catullus didn't feel powerful enough to do anything about it so Caesar wins but I got to think if he's not such a great orator maybe he doesn't win that exchange. Yeah, definitely. I'm sure if he got up there and. Wasn't or uh, he second guessed himself? Wasn't sure of himself? And of course, people that you know might have been supporters are going to second guess themselves. Exactly, and the people were very fickle. You know, they were willing to be persuaded by either one of them that made a better argument. They just kind of I you say this about the people, they kind of just enjoyed the show of watching the elites of their society fight each other all the time. You know, <laughs> they just yeah, felt like yeah. it was it was good show, good theater to watch. So yeah, Caesar wins that exchange and. Uh, 
makes a uh, or wins another political victory there. But during the same time when he's a dial, something else happens that he gets caught up in or at least is accused of. In 66 BC, Publius Cornelius Sulla, who's the dictator Sulla's nephew, and then another man named Publius Atronius Paetus are elected consuls. And those are not names you have to memorize or anything. I just mentioned them just so you know who they are, but they're not going to stay in the story for very long. Now, the two losers of this election, or two of the losers, maybe like the runners-up, Lucius Aurelius Cotta, who's a relative of Julius Caesar, and a man named Lucius Manlius Torquatus, decide that these two guys that had won had bribed the electorate, had behaved unethically, and decided to prosecute them under a recent bribery law that would strip them of their office, expel them from the Senate, and deny them the rights to display the symbols of any public office, and would bar them from entering politics ever again. There had been a number of laws passed about eliminating corruption from elections in Rome in recent years, and they didn't really seem to have any effect. People just, bribery was almost expected in the, in the Republic. It was a matter of how much did you bribe, and I guess these guys, Sola's nephew and Atronius, did it a little bit too obviously and a little bit too aggressively because they're actually convicted of this. And uh, Atronius even tries to use a gang of supporters at the trial to intimidate the court, or if that didn't work, to break up the court altogether, according to Suetonius, but it does not work. They're both found guilty, and once they're both found guilty, Cotta and Torquatus, the guys that prosecuted them, end up taking office as consuls. Now, stick with me here. Sola and Atronius, the two guys that had originally won and got prosecuted and thrown out of office and banned from, from all political life, they couldn't let this go. And they plot a conspiracy to assassinate Cotta and Torquatus, the guys that prosecuted them, uh, when they take office in 65 BC. This is the same year that Caesar's made Aedile, 65 BC. And they were going to massacre a bunch of their political opponents in the Senate as well on the same day. Now, Caesar and Crassus are supposedly involved in this plot, according to Suetonius. Crassus was supposed to be made dictator of the Republic. Caesar was his right-hand man. It was an office called Master of Horse. All dictators had a Master of Horse, and Caesar's sp- supposed to be made Master of Horse. And then Cotta and Torquatus, the guys that you know were prosecuted, would be made consuls that year. And supposedly, Caesar was supposed to give us a signal on the day of the election by letting his toga fall off his shoulder, and that would spark the revolution and and the murdering of uh, their political enemies and the taking over of the government. But they say that Caesar failed to do this when Crassus didn't show up because he was, as Plutarch says, I think it was Plutarch that says this, either, quote, moved by conscience or fear, he didn't show up. Essentially saying that either Crassus gained a conscience in the last minute and felt that it was wrong or was afraid it wouldn't succeed and, and did not show up. At the same time, there was a guy named Gnaeus Calpurnius Piso, who was like a firebrand rabble rouser that the Senate felt was planning against the government. So they get rid of him by promoting him to, I think, a, a pro praetor position in Spain. And they send him out there. And he was way too young for this, or surprisingly young. So people thought it was very odd. And they obviously did it just to get him out of Rome and so that he wouldn't be plotting with the citizens of Rome anymore. 
and they sent him, send him, him away. And supposedly this guy was supposed to rise up with Caesar and Crassus and those other two. And he was supposed to rise up in Spain and start an armed rebellion there as well. But as the story goes, Caesar never gave the signal and Gnaeus Calpurnius Piso is actually murdered by his own Spanish troops in Spain for being a tyrant. And Cotta and Torquatus were actually warned of the plot ahead of time and allowed a bodyguard. And essentially the election day goes off with no issues. None of this supposed plot ever happens. So the big question is, did any of this even happen or is this all just rumors? Because one of the things the Romans love to do is character assassinate each other. It would be great for your political enemy to start a rumor about you that you're planning to overthrow the government and spread that as far as wide as possible so that you're seen as an outsider and somebody that's trying to cause violence in the republic and you're shunned among the elite and among the entire city, right? It makes sense. Yeah. So whose word do we have to go on for this? Is it just Suetonius or – See, Suetonius, are- he, he gives some – he gives some some of his own sources, which is unusual. The fact that he would even think that he needs to give sources to me says that like he wasn't, you know, like this was not widely accepted even in his day. But I think it's Adrian Goldsworthy says that all these sources that he lists were very anti-Julius Caesar in his day. Because remember, these are primary sources, but they're actually they're not really primary sources. They're like some of them lived like a hundred years after the time of Caesar. That's like me being a primary source on what happened. In World War One, you know, like I'm a hundred years from then. Yeah, but like let's think it through logically, right? So it makes sense that Sola and Atronius would want to plot to overthrow the government. They've been, you know, kicked out of office. They've been stripped of their ability to show any insignias of office. They've been barred from politics for life. They've been embarrassed publicly, right? They have nothing to lose. You know, they have their lives to lose. They have their fortunes to lose. But for, you know, Roman aristocrats rising through, through the political ranks and gaining fame for your family was everything. And this was such a such a shameful thing to happen to them that they probably felt they had nothing to lose. So I can buy into the fact that they would want to overthrow the government. You know, they're at the very bottom of where you could possibly be. They have only up to go from there. However, Caesar had just been elected aedile. He was like he had been elected Adile that year in 65. He was moving up in the world. Why, you know, why does somebody who's moving up in the world and gaining ranks plot to overthrow the government? You know, it's usually the move of somebody that isn't getting what they want, not somebody who's being promoted left and right. On top of that, Kata, one of the, the guys who becomes consul and that they're supposed to assassinate, is a relative of Caesar. Unlikely he's trying to assassinate his relatives either. You know, in, in Rome, that was such a, a society that was so family-linked and family-focused. Uh, On top of that, Crassus, what benefit does this have to him? He's been consul already. He recently got elected to censor. I mean, he's every like both of those two are getting everything that they want. So why would they rise up against the government at this point? You know, what do they have to gain? Neither of them were desperate people. They're both doing just fine in life. I think there may have been a plot. I don't think that it had anything to do with Caesar or Crassus. I think that they were just kind of lumped in there later because it's easy to go back and rewrite history once you've seen that Caesar marches on Rome later in life and say, oh, he was plotting it all along. You know, he tried to do this many different times before that. But I just don't see the, the logic in that. And other sources don't even mention it. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like a crime scene. You have to question: Was there a motive? And if there if there was no motive, I mean, even if I mean, you could say, yeah, maybe this person did it, but if it doesn't seem like there was a motive, then it's hard to convict. Yeah, and it would be one thing if like everybody's if all the sources said, oh yeah, this happened. Caesar was involved. But it seems like it was rumor even among the, even at the time, and and you know a bunch of these primary sources don't even mention it. Like Plutarch makes no mention of anything of this. And Suetonius is, is I mean, if you read his text, he's definitely anti-Caesar. I'm not sure why. Was he a an optimist? Well, I mean, he grew up. I mean, he was alive during the time of the emperors, so it was yeah. a whole different time period. Right. Maybe he, maybe he felt resentful that Caesar ha- had eliminated the Republic. But I'm just surprised you could even print anything bad about Julius Caesar when the emperors were in charge, you know? So you're saying that the emperors would have been against anyone publishing something bad about Caesar? Yeah, because, you know, their entire legitimacy comes from him and Augustus. Really, Julius Caesar is not the first emperor of Rome, as many people say. Yeah. Augustus was. Right. And so to criticize Augustus is to criticize the current sitting emperor's legitimacy. So a lot of them, you know, would not allow that. So some of the sources that he gives, actually Cicero is one of them. So he says that he goes, and this is Suetonius, he says, quote, Tanusius Geminus mentions their plot in his history. More information is given in Marcus Bibulus's edicts and in the speeches of Gaius Curio the Elder, another reference to it may be detected in a letter of Cicero to Axius, where Caesar is said to have, quote, established in his consulship the monarchy which he had planned while only an aedile, end quote. Tenusius adds that Crassus was prevented either by scruples or by nervousness from appearing at the appointed hour, and that Caesar therefore did not give the agreed signal which, according to Curio, was letting his toga fall and expose the shoulder, end quote. I mean, think about, like, the names that he's saying there. Bibulus is one of the sources. Bibulus? (laughs) (laughs) Plotting Bibulus? He hates Caesar, you know? He's not exactly going to be a a neutral source. And it almost seems kind of, I I don't know, this is just putting something out there, but they're saying the signal was him dropping his, like, toga from the shoulder or something? Yeah. It almost kind of seems like a joke, like uh, <laughs> right? Like, like what if that happens by accident? Yeah, and I mean, it also seems like I mean they always accuse him of being like less masculine, like more feminine. It almost sort of seems like they play on that, you know, whole trope again. That's and you know I hadn't even thought of that. That's a good point, and that's probably something I haven't really mentioned to the audience yet, and I've been meaning to about Caesar. So Caesar was seen in his day as being very effeminate. Which is surprising. You think of him as like this alpha male, you know, leading armies and conquering peoples and winning in the law courts and trying to prove himself by sleeping with everybody's wives. But the Romans had a very different idea of masculinity, and they saw Caesar as being effeminate because he dressed so stylishly, because he did sleep around. It was not the mark of machismo to sleep around. That was the mark of effeminacy. And they felt that he was what they describe as like a dandy, basically, and that he wasn't masculine. And, you know, they didn't respect him because of that. A lot of these optimists, these traditionalists. So you're spot on. It does sound like maybe something that they were trying to, uh, you know, link to him being more feminine, like the the toga falling off his shoulder. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Just the whole thing. Just and you you also got to think. They're writing about a conspiracy that never happened. 
how do, how can you have a, a history recording of a conspiracy that did not happen? And like, how reliable is that? It'd be one thing if Caesar dropped the, his toga to his shoulder and then everybody starts dying and you would say, oh yeah, there was definitely a conspiracy. We saw it happen, you know, but you're saying that nothing ever happened, but this was the plan. Well, who told you that was the plan? You know, usually conspirators don't go around telling everybody afterwards, hey, you know, we had this plan to murder all the senators, but we decided not to do it because crests didn't show up. You know, how does the word of that get out? Yeah, no, it's, it's tough enough, like, yeah, when an event does happen to link, if there's no solid evidence to link, you know, who did it or to uh, to prove a conspiracy. But if it didn't even happen, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, really kind of loose, uh, a loose accusation. Exactly. That's That's the way I see it. But, you know, it is history. We, we, we don't, you know, we're not certain one way or the other, but I just don't think that this happened. I don't think he did anything to gain. I mean, he had many chances to rise up against the government in the past and never did. You know, why choose a harebrained scheme like this? Yeah. And you'll see, even when he eventually marches on Rome later in life, he's so hesitant to do it and tries, like, he does an enormous amount of work to try not to march on Rome. And he's, and he's almost, you could say, almost forced into it. I mean, at the end of the day, only he could make that decision. But he was put in such a corner that, like, that became his only option. Either stand down and allow yourself to be prosecuted or march on Rome. But he had no intention of doing that. He liked to be loved by the people. The people aren't going to love the guy that murders a bunch of their senators and takes over the government. But I do want to read another quote that Tom Holland goes on to say, after the part about the trophy staying in place and Caesar wins the exchange with Catullus, he goes on to say, quote, Episodes such as this serve to demonstrate the popularized tradition, scotched but not destroyed by Sola, was starting to revive. It was a striking achievement, but it came at a cost. For the plebs who idolized Caesar, his munificence was key to his appeal, but his enemies could reasonably hope that it might also prove to be his downfall. Just as Cato was famous for his austerity, so Caesar was notorious for his debts. Everyone knew that a moment of reckoning would have to come. It duly arrived in 63 BC. And that is where we're going to end this episode because in 63 BC is one of my favorite stories about Julius Caesar where he gambles everything on one election, even more so than he has done in the past. I mean, absolutely does a wildly unlikely gamble in the next episode and and i won't even give it away what he does but stick around and find out and uh thank you for listening